0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Lord Jesus, we love you. Jesus, I thank you that you love us so much. God, I pray that that would be the cry of our heart. There is no one else for us except you. Holy Spirit, this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear your word, that we would be impacted, that we would be changed by hearing of your love for us. Spirit, I thank you that you are the one that has something for us this morning. I am... I am inadequate to properly preach the word, but you are adequate. You have a word for us this morning, and I pray that you would allow me to step aside and that you would speak to all the hearts in this room. We love you, God. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Good morning. If you're a visitor or you don't know me, my name's Jesse. I'm one of the lay elders here. Um, It's a privilege to be up here this morning. Before I get into things, I just want to say thank you. Um, We just a little over two weeks ago had a baby, Sophia. And um, you guys have been amazing just providing meals for us, taking care of us, giving us gifts praying for us, and it's just been really awesome to feel the love and the care that you guys have for us. So thank you for that. Um, Before this, Craig told me that I should make an excuse just in case my sermon is bad that I'm tired, (laughs) but (laughs) I'm not going to do that, and actually Julie lets me sleep really well, so um, I don't really have an excuse. (laughs) Go ahead and turn to Mark 14. If you don't have a Bible, there are uh, copies of Scripture at the end of every row. Just raise your hand and somebody in the end will give you one. Um, We say this every week, but please hear me. If you don't own a copy of Scripture, then please take one of ours home. If you want one that uh, doesn't have coffee stains all over it, that doesn't look like it works at Starbucks during the week, then please come and talk to me or talk to one of our pastors, and we will make sure that you have a copy of Scripture. We think that's really important, and so, yeah, just make sure you take one home if you want one or if you need one. So we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and over the last couple of months... We have been following Jesus' journey towards the cross. Starting in chapter 10, we saw Jesus and his followers begin making their way to Jerusalem for the last time. Pastor Sam showed us how Jesus multiple times told his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem for me to die. And his disciples didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't follow along. They didn't understand. They didn't understand. And then in chapter 11, we see Jesus come to Jerusalem. He arrives. He actually comes to Bethany first, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem, where they make their kind of home base while they're in Jerusalem. And then he enters Jerusalem. And this is called the triumphal entry. We see this picture of Jesus entering the city with massive crowds gathered around, paving the way for him with palm branches and cloaks. And just he had the whole city in an uproar over him this rabbi who has a new teaching, who's claiming to be the Messiah. And then over the next couple of chapters, we see Jesus make his way into the temple several different times, resulting in conflicts with the religious leaders in the city. Jesus disputes with them how they worship, who he is and what his authority is, their leadership and understanding of God's word, and the way that they conduct themselves towards the people. And then in chapter 13, we see Jesus leave the temple for the final time, and we see this fascinating exchange between Jesus and his disciples. His disciples are in awe of the grandeur of the temple, and Jesus prophesies about the destruction of the temple, about the destruction of Jerusalem, and mixes in these prophecies about the end of the world and tells his disciples to stay awake, to be prepared for his return. And then starting this morning in chapter 14, we see that Jesus and his followers have returned to Bethany, their home base outside of Jerusalem, and um, they have this story happen that we're going to read this morning. So we're going to go ahead and start here, Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. That is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So what I want to do this morning is pretty simple. I just want to spend some time looking at this story. We're going to focus on this. We're going to focus on the people involved. We're going to focus on what happens, the motivations. And then I just want to discuss the primary motivation of this story, what Jesus has for us this morning. So the story. Jesus has spent the last couple days, as I said, evaluating the temple worship and the religious leaders. We see that he walks away disappointed angry and sad with the way that they have been treating the worship of God. He walks away disappointed in their religion, in the temple that is supposed to be the place where the presence of God resides and is worshipped. The Religious leaders have finally made up their minds that they want Jesus to die. They are ready for him to be gone out of their way, and they begin plotting against him. Jesus goes back out to Bethany and he sits down for a meal with his friends at Simon the leper's house. While there, a woman comes in and anoints him with a very expensive ointment, which causes an uproar among his disciples at the extravagant waste of money. Jesus defends her, after which we are told, Judas decides to betray Jesus and goes to the religious leaders to make a deal with them. So that's our story this morning. It's been a while since I think we've had one of these, but this is a good example of what Pastor Sam likes to call a Markin sandwich, where Mark starts one story, pauses, tells another story, and then resumes the first story. And he does this to use this middle story, the meat of the sandwich, to really illuminate the greater narrative, the outside story, and tell us what's going on. And so we're going to look at this this morning. I think the... The bread of the story, the outer narrative, makes a lot of sense with where we've been in Mark. Jesus has been riling up the religious leaders, he's been in conflict with them, and they're finally done. They're ready to be done with him. And they're trying to figure out a way for that to happen, and Judas makes that way for it to happen. But I want to talk about the story in the middle, and I want to look at some of the people involved. So in order to do that, I'm going to, just a little bit, break one of Pastor Sam's rules, which has been that he, he is trying to let us look at Mark independently sometimes of some of the other Gospels and just focus on it. But um, I think that there is value this morning in us looking at another uh, story in John that is the same story, and uh, the account that John gives adds some detail, and I want to talk about that. This story is actually one that is told in all four of the Gospels or one at least very similar to this. In Matthew and Mark, the story is almost identical. In John's account, he adds some detail. He gives us the people involved. He tells us names. And then in Luke's account, it seems to be a different woman at a different time in Jesus' life. But it is still him being anointed. So we're going to use the story in John to just give us a little bit of context because he gives us the names of the people involved. So we know from John that the woman who anoints Jesus here is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus. So let's talk for a couple minutes about Mary. If you don't know who Lazarus is, I will briefly give you that story, but um, you probably do. Mary and Martha and uh, their brother Lazarus are some of Jesus's closest friends. He spends time with them. He stays in their home, he eats meals with them. When he eats meals outside of their home, he invites them with him, and he uh, just is, has a really good, close, loving relationship with them. We see a story earlier in John, before John's depiction of our story this morning, where Lazarus gets sick, and Mary and Martha call Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. So they send a messenger to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus, however, rather than going to heal Lazarus, uses this opportunity as a greater opportunity to show his divinity and his love for all people and his power. And he waits, rather than going to heal Lazarus, he waits several days for Lazarus to die before he actually heads to Bethany. And then we see in the story that as he approaches Bethany, Martha runs out to meet him. And she says, they have this exchange where she says to him with full conviction that if only he had been there, her brother would not have died. Then Martha and Jesus have this conversation where she affirms her faith in him as the Christ and that she believes that he has the power to resurrect her brother from the dead. At this point, we see that Martha sends for her sister, Mary. And this is where Mary enters the story. She comes to see Jesus, and she throws herself at his feet, just weeping. She says the exact same words her sister had said to Jesus, telling him that if he had only been there, her brother would not have died. At this point, we see that Jesus looks at Mary weeping. And the scriptures say that he was deeply moved, and that he wept with her. Jesus, because he loves Mary, weeps with her in her grief over her brother. Even though he knows that he is in moments about to go and raise Lazarus from the dead, he still spends time weeping with her. And the story completes with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So I I want us to kind of have that backstory of Mary so that we can see that Jesus deeply loved Mary and her family. We also see a story in Luke where Mary is depicted as sitting at the feet of Jesus, a place that is classically reserved for the disciples. And she is learning from him in the exact same way that the disciples are. So we know that Mary has a very close relationship with Jesus. She is one of his close friends and uh, is almost in the same vein as one of his disciples. All right, so one other person in the story that I want us to look at for a minute is Judas Iscariot. So in John's depiction of the story, we see that it's actually Judas who leads the charge of the complaining about what Mary does in the story. We see that uh, John gives us kind of a sinister motivation for Judas's complaints, that he was in charge of the money bag. He was the one in charge of uh, paying for food, in charge of giving money to the poor, and he would often help himself to the money that was in that bag. So we have Judas, one of the twelve, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. He was handpicked by Jesus to live with him, to travel with him, to learn from him, to work miracles with him. For three years, Judas was given a high position of authority. He was in charge of the money for Jesus and his followers, and in charge of the distribution of funds for the sick and the poor. By the way, that, act, that position actually was especially important here in Bethany because Bethany is a place where the sick and the poor would gather outside of Jerusalem because uh, they were you know, not going to stay within the walls of Jerusalem, but they kind of congregated in Bethany, which side point, but that's pretty amazing that Jesus' last week in Jerusalem, he actually chooses to spend in this town with the sick and the poor instead of in Jerusalem. But anyways, okay. So Judas was in charge of the money, and apparently he has a great eye for evaluating the cost of something because he tells us that it was worth more than 300 denarii. That's an incredible amount of money. A denarius was equivalent to a day's wages in their time. So this bottle of ointment was worth over 300 days' wages. Now, just to put that in context, most of us have probably either, you know, filed our taxes for this year or are working on them, and so you probably have a pretty good idea of what your salary was for last year. In 2018, there were 261 working days if you worked a full-time Monday to Friday job. So we're talking about a bottle of ointment that was worth well more than a full year's salary. Mary breaks it open and pours this container over Jesus' head. Can you imagine being one of the disciples in that moment? Can you imagine being Judas in that moment and knowing how much this is worth? Just as an example, we use grape juice for our communion. I have no idea how much that costs. We have it up here every week. But can you imagine if we were sitting here and somebody came in with a $30,000 bottle of wine and broke it open and poured it in those glasses for us to use for communion? We would probably be shocked. Someone in the room would probably be outraged. I have no idea if they make $30,000 bottles of wine. but (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... I think we can kind of understand the reaction of the disciples here. Jesus does not react the same way. Look at what Jesus says in verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus doesn't just react in the way that they are not expecting. He actually defends her. He gives her high praise for her actions. Judas is so offended and outraged over this that he decides to go and betray Jesus And this is where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning. I want to camp on this point. I want to evaluate Mary's actions. I want to evaluate our own motivations and see why Jesus praises her for this. And here's my main theme this morning. Mary loved Jesus in an extravagant way that cost her something. This idea of extravagant love is what I want to talk about. I think for most of us, the word extravagant probably has some negative connotations. Um, I'm one of those people who likes to define words, so I looked up the Webster's Dictionary definition of extravagant, and it's something that exceeds the limits of reason or necessity. It's lacking in moderation or balance. Spending much more than necessary. Something that is wasteful. These words are things that we, especially as American evangelical Christians, probably see as good and wise, rightly so. Restraint, moderation, balance, necessity, reason. Mary's actions here don't check any of those boxes. She doesn't show restraint, she doesn't show moderation. She doesn't use reason to figure up the necessity of her action and see if the cost that she spent on this is wasteful. She goes and breaks this bottle of perfume that's worth well more than an entire year's salary and uses it to anoint Jesus. Mary's action is extravagant. And Jesus doesn't just accept her extravagant love. He praises it. He defends it. Not just that, look at verse 9. He says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus sets up her actions as something that will be remembered and told again and again, as long as the gospel is told. Let me put that in context for you. Jesus just spent multiple days evaluating the worship and religious structures of his own people. And what was his conclusion? He stands in mourning and anger looking at the temple, this central place of worship that God had established. And he says that the entire thing will be destroyed, not one stone left on top of another. This entire religious system of worship that was central around the temple that his chosen people had established and been practicing for thousands of years was finite. It was limited. It was lacking, and soon it would be destroyed. But this action of Mary, this extravagantly wasteful love, that is what would last. Sit in that for a minute. I'm focusing on this aspect of the story, partly because Jesus tells us to remember it and continue talking about it, but partly because... I'm afraid that for many of us, including me, our worship and love for Jesus looks far more like the religious systems, far more like the lists of do's and don'ts, more like the passionless, organized, structured worship of the Jewish religious system than it does like Mary's actions here, than it does like her passionate, extravagant love of Jesus. I'm guilty of that. I structure my life in a way that I try to be just an effective servant of Christ. I try to worship Him well through the systems and structures and personal things that I've set up in my life, and my family's life, and the things that we've set up here as a church. I try to be wise in my understanding and study of Scripture. I try to be effective in ministry. But way too often... I am simply doing those things, simply following the routines I've established because I know I'm supposed to. Not because I deeply and extravagantly love this Jesus and want to be passionate about what he's passionate about. That's a problem. Hear me, we can be doing the most incredible things for Jesus. We can transform our cities. We can care for the poor, we can check off every single box of what the church is supposed to be doing and what we are supposed to be in the world, but if we don't have this extravagant heart of love for Jesus, then we have missed the point. This is what God wants from us. This is the theme throughout all of scripture. We constantly see God showing his extravagant love for his people and asking them to have an extravagant love in return. It's not surprising that Jesus sums up the entirety of the law as love for God with everything we have and love for our neighbor likewise. So if you're like me and you struggle with that extravagant love, how do we get there? How do we have this same extravagant love for Jesus that Mary shows Last week, if you were here, Pastor Sam walked us through the image that Scripture uses of the bridegroom and the bride. He read Scripture about it earlier. He talked about it, this heart of love and anticipation that we are supposed to have as we wait for Jesus' return. The Bible uses this metaphor of a husband and wife's love for one another as an example of what the love relationship between us and our Savior is supposed to look like. There's an entire book of the Bible that is simply a love song between a bridegroom and his bride. It's for the purpose of displaying to us just how much Jesus loves us, the intensity of his love for us, and what our love should look like in return. The reason that I brought up the story of Lazarus and Mary and Jesus is because I want us to understand how she got to this place of extravagantly loving Jesus. We need to see that she is only there because Jesus extravagantly loved her first. 1 John 4.19 assures us that we love because he first loved us. None of us are capable of this kind of extravagant love on our own. We have to have Jesus show it to us first and then we can respond. Mary couldn't have gotten to this place without Jesus showing her an extravagant love. He went to her he comforted her. He invited her into his closest friends. He loved her family. He grieved with her in her grief over her brother. And then he showed his love for her by bringing her brother back from death to life. And over and above that, just who Jesus is, is there's simply nothing in the entire universe more extravagant than what he has done. John one fourteen says, "...and the word became flesh and dwelt among us." And we have seen his glory. Jesus, the God of the universe, who created everything for himself to be about himself, stooped down and took on flesh. He became one of us and showed us his glory and love. And then he took it even further. He gave his life to give us life. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He gave his life for us. In John 3.16, we all know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus gave his life to give us eternal life. Guys, we see that Jesus loves us with this extravagant love. The extravagant love that a bridegroom shows to his bride. I won't read the whole thing, but I want to read a portion of the bridegroom's song of love for his bride and song of Solomon 4. He says, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. And he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And he says, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Guys, this is recorded in scripture because this is Jesus' words to his bride. This is the point of everything. Jesus loves us so extravagantly that he gave everything. He literally gave every drop of his blood, every pound of his flesh for us to bring us into life with him. He made us into his bride and he continues to shower his love and affection on us as we prepare for the final consummation, that wedding feast of the bridegroom and us his bride. This is the first piece of us learning how to love Jesus extravagantly we can only love him extravagantly because he loves us first extravagantly. I've kind of wrapped up the application piece here um, as I was already talking, but this is the application for us this morning. Dan can go ahead and come on up. We're going to finish with this. There's absolutely nothing wrong with our church structures. There's nothing wrong with our personal structures of worship. And don't hear me say that our love for Jesus needs to look like going out and buying a bottle of perfume that costs a year's worth of salary. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what I do want you to hear me say this morning is that when it comes to our love for Jesus, we need to realize that he didn't hold anything back. He didn't carefully look at his resources and decide how much he could afford to give for us. He didn't look at how much of his time and money it would be wise to spend on us. We all have an emotional reaction to love songs, to stories of love where someone abandons everything to chase after the one they love. Extravagant love is intense. It's life-changing. It forces a reaction from us. I don't know if you remember Matt's sermon a couple of weeks ago about mission and the love of God. But one of the things he said that really stuck with me is that the kind of love that Jesus shows for us, his bride, changes people. It changes us. So guys, if you want to experience a love for Jesus that is extravagant, lean into Jesus' love for you. Meditate on just how much he loves you. Read the Song of Solomon. Read the Gospel of John. Read 1 John. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Read the book of Ephesians. There are hundreds of scriptures that speak about how much He loves us. His abundant, extravagant love. Ask Him to show His love to you so that you can respond with love in return. And maybe, when we consider our love for Him, when we consider how we worship Him, How much we're willing to give of ourselves to him. Of our time, our money, our emotional energy. Maybe we should be willing to make sure it costs us something. Maybe we should be willing to give every bit of it. Maybe we should consider how we can love him in an extravagant way that costs us something. Because listen, the temple was destroyed. All of the money and time and effort that went into creating that building is gone. It's forgotten. It's scattered. In the scope of eternity, none of that matters. But what does matter is Mary's extravagant love for Jesus. That story will continue to be told. We're going to spend a couple minutes in response this morning. and I want each of us to spend some time thinking about Jesus' love for us. To think about how we respond in love to him. Consider the extravagance of Mary's love for Jesus and honestly evaluate how much of yourself you're willing to give to Jesus in love in return. The band is going to play. We have communion tables up here for you to partake in. Uh, Sam and Kim will be available for you to pray with if you need someone to pray over you or with you. I just want us all to take a couple of minutes and reflect on Jesus' love for us. Reflect on our response and what it should be. He gave everything because he loves us extravagantly. How should we respond? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.